Welcome to Practically Fit, Real Fitness Over 40. I'm Jen Chamberlain. And I'm Alex Johnson. And today we're going to talk about culture, running culture that is, and cycling culture, and all the quirks and obsessions that are peculiar to each. Yeah, we think this is a really great topic because these are two of the primary activities people over 40 may use to improve their cardiovascular health. Um, And of course, there's walking, which is amazing and important, and you should do it every day. But with walking, you don't really have your own defined subculture like running and cycling, unless, of course, you're in England. Uh, Wait, what? Wait, there's walking culture in England? Well, yeah, because the whole country is covered in footpaths. And see, I know this because my my wife is British. Uh, The whole country is covered in footpaths. And there's a thing called rambling, which is where Mm. people walk around with sticks, uh, uh, basically. So there is more of a walking culture there. But in the U.S., I really feel like cycling and running, if you're over 40, um, they have their own culture. There are things you need to know. There are things that might be surprising. It's it's like moving to a new job. You can read about it online, but you don't really know the culture until you start working there. Absolutely. So today, Jen will talk a little bit about running culture, and I'll tackle cycling. So Jen, let's let's dive in. How how did you get into running? Let, why don't you share your running story? Absolutely. But first to clarify, I'm a road runner, not like the bird, but uh, that means I like to run on roads versus trails. And can I just say once again that running does not ruin your knees, even if you run on the road. Uh, Actually, I think I'm going to do a newsletter post about this, but that aside, trail running is something different entirely. And while I'm sure it's quite amazing, I have no experience with trail running because I've mostly lived in urban places. So talking about uh, about my own experience with running culture, to get my mind going, I went into my closet and got out all of my race bibs from all of my uh, various races over the past couple of decades for a little trip down memory lane. And I found I started out running a lot of small 5Ks in Waxahachie, Texas, a suburb <laughs> of Dallas. And you have a living. lot of bibs. You have, how I many do. races I, have you done for our I got listeners? A, I have a fat stack of bibs. <laughs> so how, I mean, me. can you give an estimate of how many races you've actually done? Oh gosh, it's probably, it's probably around between 30 and 50. Really? Oh, I thought it would be more. Yeah, no. I mean, no, I don't think so. But I um, thought you'd done like 30 marathons. <laughs> Uh, no, just 10, just 10. Yeah. I don't know. I might be, I might be underestimating, but yeah, I've done quite a few. So I started out in this really small town uh, where I was living at the time. And my first dose of culture shock was when I ran the Dallas half marathon in 2005. And that's a huge race. It was about 30,000 runners at its peak. So I lined up, you know, in the morning and found myself amid this sea of what seemed to me like really seasoned runners compared to myself. They all had these really great clothes and great gear, and they had these little groups of running buddies. I was there all by myself, and it was almost like I was in high school again. (laughs) (laughs) I felt, uh, I wrote about this, you know, in the newsletter, I felt outclassed and um, outdressed, uh, but, you know, I've never really let that stop me, so I just kept showing up to races, and I started to learn the ins and outs of this little microculture And boy, does it have its quirks, which I'll get into all of those gritty details uh, later. But Alex, (laughs) tell me a little bit about how you got into cycling culture. Yeah, and and mine's more recent. I mean, it came like many during the pandemic. It was something I've been wanting to get into for years and years. Um, And 
I started watching the Tour de France maybe mm-hmm. towards college. I had a friend who was really interested in cycling and he got me into it uh, and his family did it a lot. And and I'd been wanting to do it, but it was almost like I was a f- like 50% of me was like afraid to take the plunge. And the other 50% was thinking, wow, that seems really expensive <laughs> just <laughs> just to get the, the bike alone. But um, luckily by the time I'd, you know, the pandemic rolled around, I felt like I was in a position where I could finally, uh, afford it. And so I, I went out and bought a bike and part of this too was not just my desire to, you know, be like these people in the Tour de France that I've been watching for years. Um, I, I think I mentioned this in the previous podcast, actually, um, injuries to my lower back, my groin, um, it running was really, I, I wasn't feeling like I could run, at the level that I had been. So I thought, okay, this is the perfect time, perfect time to do it. And I was really lucky to be able to get a a bike when I did it. It was right at the onset of the pandemic, but bike shops were running out of bikes because people realized uh, quite quickly that outdoor activity was going to be like the one saving grace when people weren't able to go do these other activities that they've been used to indoors. So uh, I just managed to find uh, the bike that I wanted at a bike store about 20 miles away and, and I got into it. So that's that's how I've gotten into it in in the past several years, and now I'm I'm super into it. Um, so excited to talk about about cycling culture, but let's let's talk about running first, Jen. Yeah, what have absolutely. you learned over the years? Because again, this is for people who they're thinking about maybe doing it more, or they're just sort of um, you know casually running. They want to get into more races. Like, what what have you learned? Absolutely. Yeah. Happy to talk about that. I want to say, first of all, that running culture has changed over the years, at least the years that I've been in it. Um, There's this great article from a couple of years ago in Women's Running Magazine that talks about how running went from being, quote, a fringe sport to a way of life. And refreshingly, women had a lot to do with that, which is really nice. Um, In particular, I love this quote. But only recently has running transformed into a full-on cultural movement spurred in large part by the rapid growth of women in the sport. We don't jog, we run. What's more, we don't care if it's cool or not. We're runners and our sport is no longer what we do, but who we are. Which I just love that quote. I really think it encapsulates a lot of what's happened in running culture over the past uh, couple of decades at least. So the other thing, I came into this sport at this interesting inflection point point in the sport where the more serious elite runners were trying really hard to keep the more casual runners out of races because they felt like it it spoiled the experience for everyone or at least for the elites (laughs) (laughs) and and I you know I'll say you know if you've been to really big races it can be frustrating you know if you're trying to run competitively and maybe you're dodging dogs or strollers or people that are a little bit slower than you are so I understand where the tension came from but I'm glad to say that I think the sports found a way to be more or some ways to be more inclusive. So for example, they've divided it into different types of races. So there's fun runs versus a Boston qualifier. And when you sign up for a fun run, you know you're going to be getting a little bit less competition, a little bit more fun, as the name implies. Maybe some costumes, dogs, strollers, that sort of thing. Whereas if it's a Boston qualifier, it's going to be more the straightforward running. 
They also have figured out how to do different starting corrals. So you put in the time you think it will take for you to finish, and then you get lined up. I don't know. Corrals always kind of, kind of a weird term. Like it, you feel a little like yeah. a horse, but like cattle. Aside, yeah. Yeah. Aside from that, it actually the system actually works really well because then you have these sort of different starting waves, and you don't feel, you know, it's not just a whole mass of humanity trying to start at the same time. Yeah, even in in races we've done together, I mean, where it is just one corral, they will put, you know, they kind of organize people verbally so that like family, strollers, all that stuff, people who may be going to be walking would be towards the back, right? So yeah, I think you're right. Right. They must, they've really improved that because I, in all the races we've never done, I've never thought like, oh, I'm having to dodge people in strollers. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's gotten so much better. And it's become inclusive in other ways as well. So I would say in the time I've been running, I've, I've seen a lot of women runners consistently. But, you know, I'm half Latina. And I would say early on when I started running, I did not see a lot of non-white runners. And that's really changed over the years, both in races and also in um, running groups and in the typical places where runners uh, tend to run. You know, there's certain trails you see runners all the time and that's really gotten more inclusive and again I think that's a a really refreshing development but um, aside from that you know runners have some really peculiar obsessions which I'd like to talk more about so the first one is fuel as in how are you going to fuel your run man are you using the shot blocks or are you using the goo (laughs) and uh, funny story so yeah runners have Well, I mean, there's some science behind this, first of all. If you're running long distances, you know, half marathon, certainly full marathon, your body eventually runs out of its natural energy stores. It's um, called glycogen. It's stored in your muscles. And once that fuel runs out, you hit the wall, which is another specifically running term, where suddenly you know your legs can go further and your brain is just telling you absolutely not. You're done for the day. Yeah. So, you know, that's a bad feeling. So to get around that, you typically have to take in some sort of calories and you want them to be easily digestible so that you don't have stomach issues and uh, easy to carry. So you have, you know, these little gooey shot blocks and these gels that you pop into your mouth for quick fuel. (laughs) One of my coworkers, who's not a runner, I, I told her about all this. And so she wanted to try it. And thought it was all pretty thoroughly disgusting. <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah, I think if you weren't running a race, you wouldn't sit around popping shot blocks or squirting goo into your mouth. But it's a running thing. Yeah, I saw one at the store yesterday that was just like a wafer. It was just like, so they have all different types of these fueling uh foods right oh yes fuel fuel is definitely a runner's obsession the second one is shoes now i can't wait to hear about your cost comparison with cycling because running is it has a low barrier to entry financially you know you basically just need some decent running shoes and you know some uh sweat wicking clothes but when it comes to shoes runners are so um so obsessed with their specific type and it's really it's gone from one extreme to the other. So when I first started running, it was all about the minimalist shoes, like the toe shoes, or some people ran completely barefoot or in homemade sandals. You still see some of that today. But then it went to the other extreme and you had the hokas with the huge fat soles and like, yeah. this is the best running shoe. This is where you where you came in, Alex. Yep. I know. I love those. <laughs> 
So yeah, no matter, you know, so it goes to these different extremes and no matter what, runners will be pretty loyal to a certain brand and type of shoe, myself included, but you know, that's a big running thing. So let me, let me ask you a question about that. One of the things that happens if you go to buy running shoes, not at like just a normal, you know, sports store, if you go to like a running specific store, they do this whole thing with the fitting and observing your gait and then recommending shoes based on the way you're running. Is that, do you think that is like a good thing? It's real, it's legit, or is it just nonsense? I do think it is good. And, you know, when people are first getting into running, I do recommend that they go to one of those stores and, you know, have somebody take a look at, if nothing else, they'll tell you your proper size because the size of shoe that you wear every day is probably not, you probably need a half size bigger for a running shoe. So they can help with that. They can look at your gait. You know, I take it a little bit with a grain of salt because it's depending on that particular salesperson and their knowledge, but it's a good starting point. And then, then you'll get a good sense for the type of shoe that is comfortable and you're going to be able to run in because they, they'll usually let you run around in the store just to kind of try it out. And then, of course, you can purchase your shoes elsewhere at a discount. So, Yeah, I, I agree. I want to get your take on that because my experience with that was it was actually really helpful. Yeah. And uh, now I do think they will talk you into a more expensive shoe telling they you will. that you need it. But um, <laughs> I was having terrible problems with my IT bands getting tied and pain in my knees. And once I switched to the Hoka's, which we were <laughs> joking about, which have like a bigger, they're supposedly better for people who tend to land on the outside of their their mm-hmm. legs, their feet are striking on the outside of their feet, right? Which is what I do, which is that overpronating. That's overpronating, Over. right? Yeah. See, there's, yeah. there's overpronating. Underpronating would be if you're landing more on the inside of the right. foot. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I overpronate. So those shoes with the big soles, like, I got those and I stopped having the problems. So, um, yeah, it will cost you a little bit more though. I would say if you go to one of those, those types of stores, it's the difference between what, like, you know, 70, $80 versus in, in us dollars versus $130 maybe kind of price yeah, point. something like that. Exactly. You'll be paying full retail price. It's also kind of what keeps those kind of stores in business and they're great resources. They do know a lot of, typically about, you know, everything from, running shoes to fuel. So yeah. And I found, advice. I found with the shoes, once I went to one of those stores and found one I like, then I could go back on Amazon and just keep buying the same shoe because that's another thing, right? Like you don't want to go more than, is it 500 miles? So exactly. Uh, yeah. So you, you may go pay that price one time, but then you can usually find the shoes for cheaper after that. Exactly. So a couple more things that runners are obsessed with. One of them is PRs and that stands for personal record and for the non-running crowd. And so runners are constantly obsessing over their personal record for a specific distance, a 5K, a 10K. It's kind of like that what King of the Mountain thing that you were telling me about, Alex on Strava. Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, to the ridiculous degree, I mean, even if you just shave a few seconds off of the time of your last race, you have a new PR. And so that's a big thing with the runners. and then, of course, there's the insanely wrong, cha- I'm sorry, the insanely long challenging <laughs> runs. Maybe that was a <laughs> deliberate misstep. No, seriously. So there's like the ultra runs. So, you know, typical races uh, that I guess are kind of mainstream would be like 5K, 10K, half marathon, marathon. But then there are races that are much, much longer than that, like 50K or like 50 miles or 100 miles. 
<laughs> or 36 hours. So yeah, you can really, really get up there. I, I think that's actually a slightly different subculture of running, which I certainly am not acquainted with, but it's right. definitely, you know, in the same family, in the same running family. Right. I think you were right when you said it was insanely wrong, but that's just my <laughs> okay. I think if I I mean I'm curious to look into more research about that because I've read some things about that and it can be very hard on your body. It can be very hard on your body. That is that's true. Um yeah, definitely. And then the last thing I want to talk about is that runners are insanely superstitious about everything from socks to not wearing the race shirt on race day. This is a a strange thing that I've seen, heard so many times from fellow runners. So, you know, you sign up for a 5K or a race and you get a, a shirt that's branded for that particular race. Usually they give it to you ahead of time. You, the medal you get afterwards, but the shirt you get ahead of time. And uh, there's a weird superstition among runners that you shouldn't wear the shirt until after you've run the race or it'll be like really bad luck and you might not finish. <laughs> yeah. So is that is that like wearing the concert shirt to the concert? Like you just you don't. Yeah, do it. it's just bad form and apparently bad luck. Um, so I, you know, I don't think it's. I think it's a little silly to be honest. But you'll definitely hear this among runners. So I think that kind of hits the high notes of the oddities of running culture. So Alex, why don't you reveal the secret to the temple when it comes to cycling? Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm I'm pretty new to this, but I've I've made a lot of observations and and coupled that with a lot of research around cycling because typically when I get into something, I consume everything that I can <laughs> about it to learn. I'm I'm kind of obsessive in that way. So yeah, uh, cycling culture is really interesting, and I would say that it it varies from country to country and even city to city. So um, if you compare the cycling culture in, say, the Netherlands uh, to the United States, uh, and again, the U.S. is a massive country uh, geography-wise, it's, it's different. Um, mm-hmm. and, and equally, the culture in Texas uh, and in Dallas relating to cycling is going to be different than where you live right now in San Francisco, right? Right. Like, so, you know, again, I think it, I think it varies uh, widely. There's, there's also, you talked about trail running. There's so many different types of cycling. And this has been something where people have been look, you know, kind of getting into different um, types of cycling, especially in recent years. Uh, so my experience tends towards casual cycling on a hybrid bike. And then recently, um, as I mentioned, the road cycling, but I think road cyclists and mountain cyclists couldn't be any different. (laughs) Um, that's, I I saw a good article online that was kind of comparing it and it said, you know, the road people, the people who are riding on the road, look at the forest as they go by. And the people who are riding the mountain bikes are in the forest. And so (laughs) that was just kind of their way of describing it. Um, you could not pay me to do mountain mountain biking. Um, I like terrified of it, but, um, that's oh, not to I say totally road, agree. road cycling is super safe, but, um, that I just would not want to be, I mean, because mountain mountain bikers are, are pretty intense. I mean, they, so I do clip clipping in on my pedals, right. Uh, which is when you, um, have these attachments on your shoes and you're able to clip into the pedal 
as you start pedaling, which allows you to generate a little bit more power and torque on the pedal, right? You feel more connected right. to the bike. So on a road bike, that's one thing, but people do that on a mountain bike. So <laughs> if you're, you're falling serious? on a mountain bike, oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm wow. like, that is intense to be trying to clip out of that. So, uh, you've also got, in addition to mountain biking, you have a kind of an emerging genre, I would say in recent years. Uh, my wife really likes this, uh, it's gravel cycling. Uh, oh, so wow. those bikes are somewhere kind of between, a, they're like a road bike with heavier, heavy, heavier duty tires. And so you can even like get the kind of gauges of the tires varies for, um, gravel cycling, but that's really like getting out on these, you know, country roads that are gravel and just in, enjoying it. You're not really trying to, I would say, do a performance ride. Uh, there's also something called cyclocross, which I don't fully understand. It's like a mix of road cycling, mountain biking, and endurance. And there's oh, wow. obstacles and tree roots and rocks. And uh, sometimes the people have to get off their bikes and carry them, <laughs> like running. <laughs> so the, and the, the, this was, I think, was invented in France wow. as a way to like practice in the off season. So there's there's a lot of different types of cycling. So my my experience is really towards that casual and that that road cycling. So here's some things I've picked up on um, as I've gotten more involved in this, both through my own observations and again, through my obsessive reading. Um, the <laughs> first thing is kind of counter to the point you made about running, having a low barrier to entry. I feel cycling has a higher barrier mm -hmm. to entry. It's much more expensive. So just say you start with like a base level road bike, um, which is what I did. Plus, you realize, well, I need to buy the right clothing. I got, you talked about oh, your, yeah. yeah, the runners having their <laughs> whoa, cycling. Uh, I got to get my, you got to have a bib, which is the, the shorts, which then go over your shoulders. You got to have a Jersey. You gotta, I got to get multiple jerseys, right? Like I can't just have one Jersey. Uh, you have to have shoes. Again, you're getting pedals because if you want to clip into the pedals, then you need the special pedals to put on your bike that clip in. You have to get a bike computer that connects up to your phone, right? They all do that now. Uh, you have to get water <laughs> bottles. You have to get cages for the bike. I mean, you're you're already over <laughs> one grand, like no problem at like the lowest level road bike you could buy. You know, maybe anywhere from like six hundred to seven fifty. Last time I looked. Uh, so to me, cycling in that way is really similar to golf. <laughs> it's like. You have all these gadgets and gear, and I know you can do some of that for running, but I'm telling you, it, with cycling, there's always new stuff coming out, and I think that's, some people really like that because they're into gear, you know? Uh, like, I even have a radar sensor for my bike. Wait, you have a radar sensor? Is this like, so you don't get stopped by the cops? Is that the <laughs> Yeah, no. Yeah, anybody ever have one of those? I had one of those in the old days, a Cobra me radar too. detector. Uh, yeah. No, now Waze just tells me that. But um, no, it's, uh, it's, it's, no, it's a sensor that attaches to the back of the bike, and it actually syncs up via Bluetooth with the bike computer. Uh, and then... I can, it will tell me when cars are approaching. So literally on the display of my bike computer, I can see that it'll beep and it'll have a visual of the number of cars behind me, which it sounds ridiculous. It's actually, if you're riding in Texas, I'll tell you, it's a great thing to have. And we'll get into yeah. that uh, in sounds a minute, great. but yeah, just an example of the kinds of technology that, and gear that you can get into. I think that is the number one thing you need to know if you want to get into cycling. It's awesome, but it is going to mm -hmm. be 
um, it's gonna, it's gonna cost you some money. Right. Uh, I mean, honestly, that is the reason why I haven't, one of the reasons, like I said, why I hadn't gotten into this until I was pushing 40 because I just didn't have the financial means. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I think is this idea of like group riding or versus riding alone. So I feel that there are people who really love the group rides, um, and these, you can find group rides everywhere. Um, normally your local bike shop will put on group rides. And a lot of these are very inclusive. You were talking about being inclusive in terms of running. Like they have rides that cater to different speeds. So obviously mm-hmm. if you're just starting out and, or you haven't built up your fitness, you're, they'll have rides that are, that are kind of slower for people who are newer or for people who just want to ride like that. There's a lot of people who enjoy that style of riding. And then they have rides for people who are like, faster, uh, riders. Mm-hmm. And of course there's bike clubs, um, all cities and a lot of towns will have these smaller towns where you have people. And again, they'll kind of group based on ability and they'll compete in races together. And, um, some of those people are really intense. They're like the elite runners, right? Like the, right. I see people on Strava that blow me away with the speed at which they're riding. Um, I'm like, you went 40 miles an hour on that. Like, how do you even go that fast? So there's, there's, there's people who love the group rides for me. I'm kind of the opposite. I like either riding alone or riding with a friend or partner. So, you know, my wife and I ride together all the time. That's one of the things that (laughs) helped get us together. Right. Like when we were, you know, on the app or whatever, we (laughs) talked about our shared love for cycling. I think that was the first thing we talked about. So, um, for me, I enjoy, I enjoy the solitude of it, honestly, when I'm by myself and it's a, it's a way for me to get out and think and, and be by myself and see something new as opposed to like having this group experience. So I think, I think, you know, that there's different preferences there. I have to jump in too, because, uh, similar in, in running, there's, you know, running groups of all stripes, uh, different times, different, um, different speeds, that sort of thing. But I have to admit, I am not a group runner. So many people are, and they've gotten so much out of running with a group or training with a group. I've tried it, but I, again, I also just really enjoy like the solitude or maybe running with one buddy who's kind of similar in pace to me. A quick, funny story. So I did sign up for a training group uh, in Dallas when I was training for, I guess it was one of the Dallas half marathons. And I felt it'd be good motivation just to get me out on those really long runs. And, um, you know, especially in Texas, you sometimes you have to do the long runs early in the morning because it's so hot and I'm not really a morning person. So I figured it would get me out there. So I got out there, but it was actually before dawn and I was stuck in between two pace groups. So I was too slow for one group and too fast for the other. So I ended up kind of running by myself, but it was on kind of a sketchy part of the trail. So I would, <laughs> the first, first couple of miles, which were the sketchiest part of that run, I would have to like just blow myself out running fast enough to keep up with the faster group because I was afraid <laughs> of running by myself. <laughs> Yeah, I see. I totally avoid all that. I don't. I don't want. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want a group ride at all. I actually recently I got swallowed up by a large group that was riding on a road over here, and I was really annoyed. (laughs) It's like I just, I just want to get out of your group right now. Like I'm not even a part of this. You've just enveloped me. (laughs) Yeah. So, but my my point with all this is, you know, depending on your preferences, there's going to be like, especially if you're worried about like, oh, I don't. I don't know how to do this or I I don't know what I'm doing. You can find somebody to ride with. You can find a group that will help you. Again, local bike shops are a great resource. 
but equally, if you know somebody who's into cycling, I'm sure they'd be excited to, to ride with you as you, as you get going, because there will be some things when you're learning to clip in and you're learning the bike. Uh, I had a, I had a few falls when I, I first started. So it's good to have somebody out there with you when you're getting started. Um, another thing I would talk about is sort of the exercise level that you get with cycling. Um, Mm. it's fantastic exercise. Uh, and one thing I love about it is you can really adjust your effort level, right? Like you can do easier rides. I mean, you can do the same with running, but for me, having done the two both extensively, I feel like I can better, um, sort of adjust my effort level with cycling. But the interesting thing about that is like, so that said, I could go and do a two hour ride at a really low pace and feel like, well, I've been out for two hours and I've burned all these calories. I think with cycling, um, and people do this, they do these long rides, group rides where they go out. I mean, people ride 60 to a hundred miles, a hundred miles is called a century ride. And so a lot of people aspire to that, but I think because of the level of effort, sometimes it's easy to actually kind of overeat your effort level. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a quite a common thing. I've looked into some research around this. So there's, there's been research that are done on various types of exercise and their effect on diet and hunger. And so as I, as I looked into this, it made sense to me. Um, research shows that shorter, more intense exercise. So mm-hmm. for example, things like high intensity interval training, which is when you do, you know, for example, a bunch of weights and, you know, high, you know, quick bouts of intensity with very little rest, sort of like circuit training, things like that, shorter, more intense exercise, they tend to leave you less hungry. Like you Hmm. can do a workout like that and you'll find that like, I'm not really hungry after the workout. It sort of suppresses your appetite. But the research shows that slower, longer bouts of cardio exercise like cycling can increase your hunger. And so again, cyclists, you go out and you ride for an hour, two hours, three hours, whatever. Um, it's actually pretty easy to intake more calories than you burned on that ride. So that's just something to watch for, um, when it comes to cycling. Um, and the, I, I do feel a lot of these, you know, computers, like I mentioned the bike computers and the apps and everything. I think they drastically, overestimate the number of calories you're burning. Oh, really? Sometimes. Yeah. Like, I mean, I'll have rides where it's like, say I burn 1500 calories and I'm like, ah, there's no way. Um, so on the flip side though, the cool thing about that is I think, and I know, I know you believe that running is accessible for everyone, but I do think that cycling is slightly more accessible for everyone, all body types than running. Huh. Um, if you're, if you're, I, and this is just, this is based on my observations, um, and, and seeing people of all, of all body types writing and also just my personal experiences with the two forms of exercise. Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like if, if I were in a situation where I was trying to lose some weight, um, I would, I would recommend starting with cycling as opposed to running. I just think it's, it's an easier entree into cardio. I think it's slightly easier on the body and I think you can better adjust your effort. So while both, I th- again, both forms of exercise, I think, are inclusive and accessible to everyone, I think cycling, having done both, would be slightly more accessible. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to talk about is the safety issue. So oh, yeah. I mentioned the culture in, say, the Netherlands, um, mm-hmm. mainland Europe. 
cycling is a super respected thing there. It's a part of people's lives. Like in the Netherlands, I mean, many people do not own cars. They own bikes. Uh, they have infrastructure that supports cycling. You have separate cycling lanes. Um, so yes, while there's some of that in the U S um, I would say in the U S and especially where I live in Texas, cycling often pits motorists versus cyclists. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is something, you know, I'll talk a bit more about my experience here in a moment, but I just want to pull out this CDC data that I found on the CDC's website. So, and I don't, I don't say this to be like sad or depressing, but it is reality. Like this is a, a real concern. If you're going to do road cycling, you need to realize that you have to be thinking about your safety at all times. So here's, here's CDC data. Nearly a thousand bicyclists die and over 130,000 are injured in crashes that occur on roads in the United States every year. So that's wow. on roads, not on mm -hmm. sidewalks. The cost of bicycle injuries and deaths from crashes typically exceed $23 billion in the United States each year. These include spending on health care, lost work productivity, as well as estimated costs for lost quality of life and lives lost. Uh, and so, okay, and it's a great activity as you're aging, right? But adults right. ages 55 through 69 have the highest bicycle death rates. Wow. Um, this is interesting. Male bicyclists have a death rate six times higher and injury rates five times higher than females. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> and I could make some editorial comments on Me that. Too. I think we Me would too, see where it's all, where it's going, and it's probably pretty accurate. Yes. Um, most bicycle deaths occur in urban areas. Not um, surprising. Not surprising, and uh, I'll talk about that in a second. About 64% of bicyclist deaths occur on sections of roads away from intersections where higher speeds might occur, mm -hmm. and then about 27 occur at intersections. And this is really, um, this is a sad one. About one third of crashes that result in a bicyclist's death involve alcohol from the motor vehicle driver and or bicyclist. So oh, really? it's not to say that there aren't people oh. riding while under the influence, but you know, you would tend to think that that would generally be like a DUI situation with the, hmm. the person driving the car. Yeah. So those are some pretty, um, pretty amazing statistics and not in a good way, obviously. They're just, it's something to keep in mind if you get into road cycling in particular. And if you talk mm -hmm. to any road cyclist, they will warn you about aggressive, angry drivers um, yep. in the United States. Again, I think you go, and, and, and my wife has told me it's similar in the UK, but you go into like, I think mainland Europe, places like the Netherlands, Germany, France, you don't have as much of that. But I experienced this, I would say that every ride that I go on, and this is not an over-exaggeration, every road ride that I do outdoors um, I have at least one episode during that ride of somebody, you know, being abusive with the horn or screaming at me. Like I'm not, it's not an over-exaggeration. And, wow. and again, this is in Texas. I think, you know, particularly here, there's a lot of this. And so the other thing I've observed is it's worse when I'm in the urban areas. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I can, I can get out away from, um, the city some where I live. It takes a bit of effort, but I can do it. Uh, I've also, you know, my wife and I will take our bikes, you know, if we go on a trip or something, or we've, we've driven to other kind of rural areas to ride. And I don't, experience that in the what we would call the country in texas uh but in the urban areas this this happens quite often and i've had people um 
I've had people actually purposely like drive their cars just within, you know, a foot of me to scare me. I've had people put exhaust on me and, and I don't. And so I, I think my behavior now has gotten bad too, because I'm like, well, you know what, this happens so often and I'm so defensive about it. I'm just like ready to raise the middle finger at anyone who does it to me, (laughs) which is not good for cyclists either in terms of reputation, but it's, uh, it's pretty, it, it can be really, uh, scary sometimes. So there's ways you can, um, help with this. If you're thinking about doing road cycling, like number one, plan out your routes. I mean, sometimes you're going to have to go on busier roads, but of course you want to try to avoid super busy roads, but also, um, you know, they've done research on this flashing lights, reflective clothing, uh, can help, you know, motorists see you better. Sometimes I've had people who are genuinely concerned about me. They're like, you're not very visible. Like, especially if it's Mm -hmm. in the, you know, when I'm getting closer to sunset, which is actually really kind. I appreciate when people have told me things like that. That's happened a few times where people are like, I can't see you, um, you know, at dusk. And so, uh, of course also you have to wear a helmet. Like that is, that's a given. Yeah. You would think, uh, <laughs> I see people riding bikes all the time, not generally road bikes, but I do see people riding, um, cat, you know, like a hybrid or bike or, you know, cruisers yeah, without, without helmets. That. And, you know, you still got to go through intersections on those bikes. So I, I can't, you should wear a helmet at all times. Uh, but this is a, this is a concern. If you're, if you're going to get in cycling, you just, you need to realize that you have to be cognizant about your safety. Um, okay. So that part aside, because I know that's a bit of a downer, uh, (laughs) but the amazing, the, the, the last thing I want to highlight about cycling culture is it's really, uh, my experience has been in talking to people who do it. Uh, it's all about checking out the view, enjoying the journey. You can stop and get coffee on your, on your, (laughs) you know, stop and have a snack, have a picnic take some photos, look at some cool animals. Like there's so much you can experience on a bike. And it's simply because you can, you know, with running, even if you're training for a marathon, right? Like, you know, if you're in a city, you're not really going to get out of the city, but you're on a bike. I can get out into the country on my bike. Uh, I can, I can go ride up and down some rolling country roads and see, you know, cows and horses and, stop in a really peaceful spot. Um, and it opens up a lot more route opportunities because with mm-hmm. running, you're, you're just more limited just based on the physical limitations of how far you can run. So True. to me, that's like the most amazing thing about cycling. I get to go places that I wouldn't have necessarily gone, um, when I was running and it's, it's all about the journey and enjoying it. Um, and I think people who cycle a lot really enjoy that aspect of it. So those are the kind of things I would highlight in terms of cycling culture. Yeah. You know, wow. The statistics, statistics were really eye opening. And, um, I have to say I had some similar experiences in my limited cycling in Dallas. So when I was in college, I didn't have a car and I would ride my bike, um, to go get groceries actually. And I actually, yeah, had people honk at me, kind of harass me. I actually had somebody spit on me once, like just roll down their window and spit on me from their truck while I was riding a bike. So that really unpleasant. But I have to say that San Francisco, I think is a lot more like Europe in terms of bike culture. We have bike lanes, bikes are really well respected. Uh, Cars are expected to stop for both bikes and pedestrians. And there's so many things to see. So, you know, sometime you and Abby, Alex should come out here and uh, check out San Francisco. It's got a great bike culture. 
Well, you know, I love to ride a pill, so I'd be right at home there. <laughs> Plenty of those for you. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so I thought we'd do a little bit of a speed round here to, and talk about what's great and what's awful about each of our respective cultures. So I'll go first. I think what's great about running culture is the enthusiasm, the inclusion, and the fact that you see people literally of all ages, sizes, abilities outrunning, and I think that's great about it. What's awful about running culture the early mornings. Oh my gosh. So many runners love to be up at the crack of dawn out there running. And I just am never going to be that person. And why do races have to start so early? Well, is it like that in California as well? I mean, the weather, I mean, in Texas, some of that I always thought was the weather, you know? Oh, it's the same here. I get up to walk my dog at six 30 and all the runners are just joyfully out there running. And I'm like, Oh, no. Yeah. How do you get that much energy at that hour? My, my, I just can't do that. I, I told you about my early morning workout failed previously. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just like you. I can't do that. Um, well, so from, from my perspective, the great is, is very similar to yours. The enthusiasm for the sport, for cycling itself, the fact that everyone is welcome. Um, again, I think it's accessible for everyone. Um, there's all different types of bikes. So like, if you want to get on a road and go really fast, you can do that. If you want to go in the woods, you can do that. If you want to just cruise around the neighborhood, you can do that. Um, it's, it's, everyone's welcome. There's all different types of, of <laughs> equipment to get the job done. And it's also about the, the places you can go. Like I said, I live in the middle of an urban area and I can get out into the, the country or at least what used to be the country around here <laughs> <It's> like, as <laughs> Dallas continues its urban sprawl, but I, I can get away from, um, the city, the awful, uh, I think pretty obvious based on what we talked about today. The cost is a barrier to entry. I think um, you can mitigate that through, you know, trying to look for used equipment, you know, mm-hmm. on on places like Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace. But then the safety issues. And again, I think this may vary state by state. Like I can only speak to what I experience in Texas, Texas, and what I read online. Uh, but there can be pretty big safety issues with, with road cycling. So definitely something to keep in mind um, if you're planning on getting into the sport. Yeah, well, before we go, Alex, I have some really exciting news to share. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. All right, great. We have our first listener story. All I'm right, so I'm super excited, excited about this. Yeah, because yeah. we've been asking for listeners to share their stories. And last week we did a podcast on our fitness fails, right? Well, one of our listeners told us about her fitness failures. Um, Her name is Madeline. She's from the great state of California, and she does triathlons. So she has a couple to share. She said, um, first of all, when she first started doing triathlons, she didn't train with a team. We talked a little bit about, you know, training with a group. She thought she could do it all on her own. So she used to do six to 10 mile runs the day before the event, thinking it would warm her up instead of wearing her down. So she didn't understand the idea of a taper, which is interesting. That's um, something I should have mentioned in the running section too. Taper is the term that runners use for when you finish training or you're at the very end of your training for a race and you take a little bit of an easier pace so that you'll be nice and fresh for your actual race. And then the second one she had was around nutrition. She said she wasn't fueling proper, properly, actually starving herself and then wondering why she bonked. Another running and uh, I guess triathlon term where you kind of run out of energy. And she said, you know, that was something she had to learn with experience too. So Madeline, thanks for sharing your story with us. 
Yeah, those are great. Played right into the, the episode today. Thanks a lot, Madeline. And if you have those kind of stories, please send us an email, um, alex at practically.fit, or uh, sign up for our newsletter uh, at practically.fit. And there's a comment section. It's a Substack newsletter, so you can comment on the podcast. You can comment on the other content that we share uh, each week. Uh, we'd love to hear more stories and share share more stories on the podcast uh, because we're really excited about building a, a community around this idea of fitness over 40. So thanks, Absolutely. Madeline, for being the first person. Hope we'll get some more stories soon. And I should also mention, please, please, uh, if you've been enjoying the podcast, uh, please go out to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider, but Apple's the best because they're, they kind of drive the podcast <laughs> uh, segment in terms of uh, listenership. If you could leave us a rating and or a review, it would mean a lot to us. Uh, and we've gotten lots of reviews already, so we really appreciate it. And we're excited about the podcast continuing to grow. So uh, uh, we hope you'll all join us next week as Jen and I talk about nutrition. So oh, yeah. we and we had a we had a request for this, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of them actually. A so, couple yeah. of a couple of our listeners have requested this. We've heard from them. And so, how do we adjust our diets as we age? How do we balance eating healthy? with enjoying food. And I know uh, here in the U.S., this is on a lot of people's minds as they head into Thanksgiving. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah so this is a good time to be then. doing this episode, very timely. So we'll talk more about that next week. But until then, remember... Fitness is for everybody. Everybody.